Welcome to True Crime on Easy Street. True Crime podcast brought to you by Easy Street Restaurant Bar Performance Hall. I am Katie Givens, and I am not a lawyer. Voice brought to you by this seasonal cold or uh, allergies. I don't really know. It's a good thing she mentioned it before we did. <laughs> yep. Uh, my name is Kelly Turner. I am not a doctor. And my name is Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. <laughs> it never. I never stop laughing like at that. Anybody needs reminding. <laughs> read my stuff. <laughs> This week, we've got a story coming to you from Huntsville, Alabama. Um, we've already been there once in our five, now six episodes, but I think Kelly's going to get us into that here momentarily. On February 12th, 2010, Amy Bishop, a neurobiologist at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, was attending a biology department faculty meeting. The meeting was in the Shelby Center for Science and Technology and was being held on the third floor in a conference room, like many times before. However, today, Amy Bishop was quiet, too quiet. She was normally a very active member of faculty meetings, talking frequently. But today was different. Something was off. Her colleague, Deborah Moriarty, a biochemist and friend, noticed this change in Bishop immediately and throughout the faculty meeting. As the meeting was coming to a close, Amy Bishop stood up, pulled a 9 millimeter gun from her bag, and shot Gopi Padilla, a plant biologist and faculty chair, in the head. She turned and shot Stephanie Monticciolo, a department assistant. She then shot Adriel Johnson, a cell biologist, followed by Maria Raglan Davis, a molecular biologist. Deborah Moriarty dove underneath the conference table, wrapped her arms around Bishop's legs, and begged her to stop. Bishop looked down at Deborah, raised the gun to shoot, but it jammed. Amy Bishop tried to fire again at Deborah Moriarty, but the gun only clicked. At this point, Deborah crawled beside Bishop and out of the conference room, all the while hearing click, click, click as the gun continued to jam while Bishop followed her. Deborah ran back into the conference room, closed the door, and barricaded it with the help of another colleague. Being unable to return to the conference room, Amy Bishop went downstairs to the women's restroom, cleaned the blood off the gun, disposed of the gun and her blood-stained blazer in the trash can of the bathroom. She then walked into a lab and asked a student to borrow his cell phone. She called her husband to come get her as he was her ride to and from work most days. She simply said, I'm done. As she exited the Shelby Center, Amy Bishop was apprehended by the police. So before we continue with today's episode, we're going to talk about our sponsor, Easy Street, which is located right here in Center, Alabama, in the middle of beautiful Cherokee County, which is in the middle of Northeast Alabama. If you drew a triangle between Atlanta, Chattanooga, and Birmingham, you know where we are. Welcome to the beautiful Cherokee County, home of the Easy Street Performance Hall, Restaurant and Bar. I said it first this time, Scott. Mm, okay. Performance Hall. We do a lot of cool things at Easy Street, except for the fact that they let me bartend on Saturdays. But the food is good. The entertainment <laughs> is fantastic. And all of the folks who own and operate the place are first, uh, first rate, top notch. And uh, you should really come and see us sometime. We're going to have a live show. Every other Wednesday, the next one is March, I'm sorry, May the 26th, and the next one will be June the 7th, did we decide? We, you know what, forget that, what, delete it. Whatever's <laughs> two weeks from this Whatever's Wednesday. Whatever's two every, weeks after this Wednesday. Every other Wednesday every night. Every other Wednesday. Yep, yep. Uh, and we're going to do some different things. We talked about this yesterday at a, at a cool lunch meeting that we had. Uh, we're going to do some different things. We're not going to stick to the script on Wednesdays necessarily. Yeah, we're going to throw that out the window. Out the window with that. And we're going to talk about some of our favorite uh, true crime documentaries and some other things that we like. Am I giving it away too much? Yes, because, stop talking. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. You'll have, <laughs> you'll have to come and check us out and find out for yourself, but we're going to have some really good things. And while you're there, uh, you can have some really good food. We have sliders that are 
gourmet crystal burgers on a plate with waffle fries. I finally, I finally tried the uh, the strawberry salad with the spinach and the you chicken. You have not yet the, tried that? It was so good. I know. I get it. If I'm in a salad mood, that's usually the one that I get. It's got this balsamic vinaigrette on it, and everything's made fresh in the back. I mean, the, the lunch menu items are made special or are made fresh uh, in the kitchen every day. It's just really a good time. It's something that doesn't exist anywhere within at least 100 miles of here. How far away is Birmingham? At least that far away. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's really unique, and we've got a great crowd of people who come to this part of the country uh, for, for all the tourist things that we offer. There's the mountains where you can hike and climb, and, and the rivers where you can, and the, and the creeks where you can float the creeks. I have several friends who went just this past weekend and floated Terrapin Creek, another uh, tourist attraction that we have here. Of course, we have Weiss Lake. If you have a boat and a trailer, bring it with you. Because mm-hmm. we promise you will have a good fun, uh, a good time. Just make sure you know where the river channel is, because we don't want to have to replace your prop while yes. you're here in the that shallow parts. Of Be our very lake. careful. And you know what goes great with floating the creek, or being on the lake, or just laying out by the water, listening to a podcast. Is she going to say beer? <laughs> well, beer, but listening while you're to listening. Yeah, oh, yeah. while you're listening to our podcast, find us on Apple Podcast, find us on Anchor, find us on Spotify. Where else? Google. Google. Something. All what the, does Google have? I think it's just called Google Podcast. Okay, Google Podcast. Well, you guys trick me. I mean, we always have beer while we're recording it. I just assumed that that's Everybody what have meant. beer with us. Right, it's have one Unless with it's us. the morning time and you're driving to work and do yes, not do that. Don't do that. Okay, be responsible out mm-hmm. there. But thank you, Easy Streets Performance Hall Restaurant and Bar for sponsoring us. Amy Bishop was born on April the 25th, 1965 in Iowa where her father was a professor at the time. She was the daughter, is the daughter of Sam and Judy Bishop. Like I said, Sam is a professor. Uh, At some point in her early life, they moved to Braintree, Massachusetts. And if you don't know anything about Braintree, it's one of the oldest cities in the United States of America. It was founded in 1640. Uh, According to the 2010 U.S. Census, about 35,000 people. So not a small town, but not a large town. It's a large-sized town for folks like us who live in towns of 3,500 and 5,000 people. But nationwide, nobody would look at a number like 35,000 and think, wow, that's a really big city. Uh, She eventually had a younger brother named Seth. Uh, They were competitive as children, but they seemed to get along pretty well based on the research that I did. Uh, He was a... Amy was a violinist, but it seemed like Seth at some point early on in his life became a better violinist. There was a little bit of a competition between them. I read one passage where it seemed like, I don't know if I'm directly quoting this, but Amy felt like she had to stand up and wave her arms to get her parents' attention. So Seth was sort of the the favorite child of the two. Uh, And so they grew up in a fairly normal childhood in Braintree, Massachusetts. Until we get to December the 6th, 1986. Uh, They lived in a Victorian home on a quiet street in a nice neighborhood in Braintree, Massachusetts. Until one day, Amy was upstairs, and she's 21 years old at the time, right? So she is in her bedroom playing with a shotgun, for lack of a better term, I don't know how else to describe it, that her father bought the year before after their home had been broken into and some valuables had been stolen. The father insisted, Sam, that they buy a shotgun for personal protection, something that was a little bit stranger in Massachusetts at the time than any of us who live here in Alabama would think of today because everybody has a gun in Alabama. At the time, at least in Massachusetts, not so much, but they did. And it was a Mossberg pump-action shotgun. And she was in her room playing with the shotgun She had been taught how to load the gun, but according to the story that Amy told later, she had never learned how to unload it. And inadvertently, in her telling of the story, she fires the shotgun into the wall of her bedroom and makes a hole. And now for clarification, a a pump-action shotgun, you have to pump it to get it to shoot. There's no accidental There is no way to accidentally shoot a pump-action shotgun. You have to pump it once to load the chamber. And after you fire that shot, you have to pump it again to, uh, to eject that chamber or that shell from the chamber. And then you have to pump it again to load the next shell that is in the, the so part a lot of, the of gun movements. where other shell. It, it's not something that you can accidentally shoot two or three times without making some moves that you've been taught to make with that okay. shotgun. So she fires the shotgun by accident 
into the wall of her bedroom and she takes the gun downstairs into the kitchen where her mother and her 18-year-old brother are uh, putting away groceries that Seth has just returned from the grocery store with. She asks her mother, she says, I have loaded the shotgun and I don't know how to unload it. I need some help. And she says, well, don't point it at anyone. Give it to your brother. And as she swings the gun around, the gun goes off and shoots Seth in the right side of his chest with birdshot from point blank range. And if you know anything about a shotgun, you know that Seth is going to be dead in about 20 minutes unless he gets shot in a hospital because he's going to bleed to death before anybody can get to him and save him. And sure enough, that's what happens. In the ensuing confusion, Amy runs out of the door with the shotgun. Judy Bishop, who is described as everyone who knew her back in the day as a very stoic person who did not display a lot of, emo- uh, a lot of emotion, picked up the phone, called 911 and said, send an ambulance, my daughter has shot my son, and hung up the phone. A few minutes later, uh, a few minutes later, police arrive, only a couple of minutes later because the police station is just down the street from their house. They walk up to the front door of this house and see Judy Bishop calmly standing at the front door. She opens the door and points inside and says, he's in there. She is not the mother who is consoling her son who is laying in a pool of his own blood about to die. She's not frantic. She's not emotional at all by all descriptions. And she said later, I knew he wasn't going to make it. So. She sends the police in. A couple of minutes later, paramedics arrive and load him into an ambulance, take him to the local hospital. He's pronounced dead 15, 20 minutes later. But Amy is not at the hospital. Amy is running down the street in her coat, which she remembered to put on before she came down the stairs for some strange reason. She still has her shotgun. She tries to carjack someone in the street. They drive away. She walks across the street to a car dealership and tries to steal a car at gunpoint from the car dealership. When they slam the door in her face, she runs across the street again to a, uh, a newspaper distribution center where a bunch of teenagers are working and shouts, I need a car. And their response is, collectively, no fucking way are you getting a car from us. And it's just at that point that the police arrive and after she points the shotgun at the Braintree Police Department officers who arrive to try and resolve the situation, they eventually take the gun away from her. They load her in the car. They take her to the police station. And they begin to try and find out from her exactly what it is that happened. In the meantime, back at the house on Braintree where the bishops live, Seth is being loaded into the ambulance. Judy goes to the hospital with a local police officer. And Judy is someone who is a member of the, what we would call the town council, right? But around here, a town council has anywhere from five to eight people in it. The town council in Braintree, Massachusetts at the time, and I assume it's still the case today, had 240 people in it. So she's one of 240 people who are a member of the Braintree town council, if that's what we're going to call it. So she knows the police department. She knows the guys. She knows the officers. They take her to the hospital. She doesn't say anything all the way there. Sam Bishop is at the mall shopping for Christmas. Remember, it's December the 6th of 1986. So he meets her. He meets Judy at the hospital later that afternoon. As soon as he gets home and there's a bunch of red and blue lights flashing in his front yard, he gets taken to the hospital. There's no embrace between the two of them. They don't really seem, I don't want to say they don't seem surprised at what has happened, but it's not the typical, what I would think, our son's been shot and tears down the face and hugging and praying and hoping and they're just, they were two very stoic people. I've said stoic once already and I'm not going to say it again, but they just sat quietly and waited for, for the situation to unfold. So- what you're saying with this when you when you are bringing up that they are stoic and you're you're bringing up their behaviors this is not considered typical behavior by parents who have just experienced this but what you're saying is based on these particular two people these two parents 
this may not be a not typical out of character. Right. Okay. So not, you're so you're saying they're just this this is yeah, not part of their to, typical personality. Yeah, not not trying to imply that anything untoward is going on. It's just it seems to be a pattern that these two have established over their whole lives. That just seems to be the way that these people, and some people are, some people are just uh, less emotional than others. And these, Sam and Judy Bishop, by all accounts, are two of those people. Okay. So, the, they are sitting in the waiting room in the ER. The doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, we've pronounced your son dead. And just about that time, Judy looks at her husband, Sam, and says, I've got to go to the police station. They have found Amy. So, she is transported over to the police station where she immediately walks into the room where Amy is being questioned by the local police officers who have picked her up with a shotgun in her hands and who has tried to commit a couple of additional crimes after the, whether or not you believe it's an accidental shooting in that kitchen. But she tried to hide, she tried to carjack someone and she tried to commit armed robbery at a car dealership. And then again at a newspaper distribution center across the street, she goes home that night. How does that happen? Well, the speculation is that because Judy Bishop was a member of the town council and knew the police chief and the mayor and some other people who were influential, and nobody's ever proven this, but it's, it's something that certainly looks fishy. Looking back at the time, it was 25 years uh, previous when this happened. I mean, the shootings in Huntsville took place in February of 2010. This took place in December of 1986. And a lot of people, nobody knew this about Amy Bishop. It was, it was, it was, I don't want to say it was put under the rug. For whatever reason, Amy Bishop did not face charges for the accidental, air quotes, shooting of her brother or for the crimes that she committed on the way to the police station after that. And there's been all kinds of speculation about how much influence Judy Bishop had with the local authorities and the local officials. Nobody investigated it very... uh, Sounds like she had quite a bit of influence. It sounds that way. But I can also see the other side of it where maybe they knew this woman and they thought, oh, this her daughter would never do anything like that. It must have just been a horrible accident. We'll investigate it later. And a few months later, there was an official report that came out from the state police. Okay, gotcha. Um, back Later in, in March of 1987, they did file a report and they called it an accidental shooting. There were officers in the Braintree Police Department who thought that what happened that night in that or that afternoon in that police department was an atrocity, that it should have never happened, that nobody who just killed someone should be allowed to go home and sleep in their own bed that night, maybe the next day, but let's investigate this first and find out what's going on. But that didn't happen. So that is 24 years before the events take place in Huntsville. And like I said, nobody really knew those details until Amy Bishop was arrested in front of the Shelby Center. Well, because Uh, she had no record. There was no record of these crimes. Exactly. It was, uh, it was and, never filed. I guess because it was ruled an accident. That, yes. that's, if something's ruled an accident, it's not on your record, I guess. Right. It was that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It okay. was ruled an accident the day it happened. And then four months later, when the state police followed up with a cursory investigation to hear some people tell it, nothing changed. And okay. so that, that never happened. So... Time ticks on, and Amy, at this time in 86, you said is 21 years old? Correct. Okay, so what does she do after well, this? Well, she's a student at Harvard, and she's a very smart person. She's, she's, she's a brilliant person. She's a little bit uh, brittle and hard to deal with, according to a lot of accounts that I've read. And, and the book that I read and got a lot of my research from was a book called A Professor's Rage. It was a 2011 book by, I think, St. Martin's Press. It's written by a girl named Michelle McPhee. And it's very thoroughly researched, and there's a lot of information in here that I didn't see or hear in any of the podcasts that I listened to or any of the YouTube videos that I watched. The most thorough accounting that I have found so far, and it's, it's a really interesting book, and she tells a really good narrative about the whole thing from start to finish. And so what happens next with, with Amy is she has just started to date this guy. Oh, and here's another Alabama connection, by the way, and we've, we've already established the Huntsville connection. The man that she married... Jimmy Anderson, he grew up as a teenager in Chalkville, Alabama. Okay. And when he was a teenager, his parents or his father got a job at Honeywell, which is a big uh, technology uh, firm. I'm not sure exactly what Honeywell does. I probably should have researched that a little bit more, but I didn't. 
But he moved, they moved to uh, Foxborough, Massachusetts, which is not too far from Braintree. It can't be, right? Massachusetts is pretty small, so it can't be too far away. Anyway, they met, uh, Jimmy and Amy met playing Dungeons and Dragons in college. So that's how they met. And they began to date, and they had just started dating when the incident with her brother Seth occurred. Now, let me ask you this, and you may not know, was Jimmy at Harvard as well? Yes. So they met in college. They met in college. But they were both going to Harvard, so they were playing Dungeons and Dragons, but they're both in Harvard. Correct. So this is like, okay, So they're I'm both sorry. pretty smart okay, gotcha. people. Thank you. And, and, and right after the incident with Seth took place in the kitchen, right before that, actually, they, they, had, uh, they had already started to date. Jimmy was at the funeral. He was a brand new member of the family, for lack of a better term, and he didn't really know anything about the details himself, he said many years later, because he had just been introduced to everyone, and he was there to support her at the funeral, and so he didn't know a lot about the backstory about how that happened. Uh, One of the stories that I can tell you is the first time that Jimmy took Amy to meet his parents. Uh, he showed up unannounced one day with Amy in tow and they went into the house and Jimmy went upstairs to get something that he needed to take back to school with him and left Amy alone in the living room with Jimmy's mother. She said that encounter was very awkward. She said that Amy referred to him as James the entire time that they were there. His name on his birth certificate is Jimmy. Nobody called him James. Ooh, so mom was not liking that. Amy made a bad first impression with yeah. her future husband's mother. Yeah. Moms like don't it. like you to mess up their son's name. Right. Oh, no. no. Wait till we get to the wedding. Oh, my. Yeah. You're going to love that part. So she thought immediately, and this is a quote, she thought that Amy Bishop was weird. Okay. Looking back, it seems like she had this pretentious streak in her. She knew that she was going to be, a, she ended up getting a PhD in genetics from Harvard. So she knew that she was smarter than the average bear, right? Her IQ was reported to be 180 or more. And what the mother says in the book of Professor's Rage is, I felt like I lost my son that day because she had changed his name. That was not the name that we had given him. It was a, their family was Greek and it was, it's the Americanization of the Greek name Dimitri. I would not have known that if I hadn't read it. I don't know how Dimitri translates to Jimmy, but there you have it. And so when she heard her future daughter-in-law refer to him as James multiple times in that short visit, she felt very strange about what her son's future was going to be like, and she turned out to be right about that. Well, and she's also, you're, you're messing with someone's culture. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone's name is the Americanized version of, of Greek, you know, Dimitri, right. they, that's their culture. And, and, a li- and a little bit of oh. irony there, Sam Bishop's name was not originally Sam Bishop, and I wrote it down and tried to pronounce it three times, and I ended up wadding it up and throwing it into the garbage, because and he is also Greek. Sam. Sam Bishop. Okay. Her, her father. Amy's father. Amy's father. Amy's father. Was is also Greek, so oh, wow. you would think she would have had a little bit more respect for a Greek translation into English than she did, but... She wanted to call him James, and therefore she did. Pretentiousness or not, he became James after that. And he obviously was okay with that. Yes. All right. So the two of them got married in uh, August of 1989. Three years after the shooting accident, quote. Yes, the shooting accident. And at the same at, around the same time they got married, and I didn't find a, an exact date on this, but around the same time that she graduated with honors from Harvard with a PhD in genetics... The two of them got married. Uh, At the wedding, the Anderson family felt very estranged from the rest of the wedding party because they didn't feel like anybody in the Bishop family came over and spoke to them. They sat at the reception at a table by themselves, and they had just heard their son asked if James would like to take Amy's hand in marriage, and they're both sitting there thinking, Who's James? Who is this guy? Is (laughs) somebody else about to come outside? Because I don't know who this is. So they didn't like Amy. To start with. And what we're going to find out in the next few minutes is that that was the general first impression that she made with most of the people that she encountered in her life. Uh, Nobody liked her very much after they got to know her a little bit. Uh, The three of them, uh, the two of them eventually had three kids together. And 
the next time uh, personality shows up on radar, at least in in the in the book that I read, is in 1993. And and one thing that's going on in 1993 is the Unabomber is at large, and the Unabomber is targeting, in addition to some other particular targets, university professors. So a university professor named Dr. Paul Rosenberg at Harvard has given Amy Bishop, who is at this point working in the, I guess, the genetics lab, or at some point in the, in the, at the hospital there at, at Harvard, she's doing research on genetic-related things. And Dr. Paul Rosenberg gives her a negative evaluation, which means basically that she is not going to be, her contract won't be renewed. So no additional time, no tenure, no nothing done. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's correct. She, she knows she's going to lose her job. And not long after that, Dr. Rosenberg and his wife come back from a vacation and find a box. And I don't want to be so basic as to say it's ticking, but he immediately is suspicious of it because it looks like there's an address on it that he didn't order anything from. And so instead of opening it up in the middle where you would normally open a box, you you cut it where the tape is. He cuts it at some other location and opens it that way and sees things that make him think it's a bomb. So he calls the FBI and the ATF gets involved. Uh, In 1994, the ATF conducts a search warrant at the Bishop slash Anderson home. They, they had enough evidence to request a search warrant, which is significant to me. Um, but I can't wait to hear what not a lawyer over here thinks about that in a minute. But they didn't find enough evidence to, to take it to a grand jury and try to get a conviction. So they're thinking that she sent him a bomb. Yeah, I don't know that they... The reason I mentioned the Unabomber is I don't think Rosenberg thought that he was necessarily a potential victim of the Unabomber. It's just professors were on the lookout for suspicious things at the time because of what the Unabomber had been doing. Right, right. Which is why he didn't open the box in the normal fashion. But when they sat him down and said, who do you think has a grudge against you? The person at the top of his list was Amy Bishop. Because of this negative. Because of the negative evaluation. And he just thought, and uh, his words, and this is a direct quote in the book, from Dr. Rosenberg to the ATF agent, that woman is dangerous. Oh, goodness. He felt that when they had the conversation where he explained to her that he had given her a negative evaluation, that she was not going to be asked to come back. He was scared of her that day. The first thing he thought of when he got a box that was, again, not actually ticking, but turned out to have bomb components in it, was that she was the person most likely to have sent it to him. Because she's smart enough to do it and mean enough to do it. Did she ever confess to that? No one's ever confessed to that. And the file was closed in May of 2001 with, for lack of evidence. So okay. nothing okay. ever came of that with the Andersons. All right. It's two years later before the Unabomber is caught. That happens in 1996 when they find Ted Kaczynski in a remote cabin in the hills of Montana. But it is that same year that the Bishop parents sell their home on, uh, I forget the name... Uh, It's in Braintree. I forget the name of the road. It doesn't matter. And when they move to another town, Amy and James remain on that property because there's what's called a carriage house in the backyard. I guess back in 1640, when Braintree was founded, you had to have somewhere to put the horses. And at some point, they had converted that into a 900 square foot abode for people to live in. Let me me do this. Um, Does he go by James? Yes. Once Amy decided that he was going to be called James, he explained it to his father at the wedding. And he said, dad, because dad said, hey, what the hell are you doing? Your name is Jimmy. He said, dad, Amy is a professor at Harvard. She thinks I sound like an Alabama redneck when I introduce myself as Jimmy. I have the accent already. I mean, he basically sounds like the three of us and he's living in Massachusetts. So he is glad to appease his wife by letting her change his name not legally, I think, to James. So it's not been legally changed to James. No, but he does business transactions this way. When he goes and asks for a loan at the bank, he is now James Anderson. I just want to support his mother. And I was going to say, well, yeah. we're going to call him Jimmy. But uh, I mean, I that, guess if the man himself refers to himself as James, we will respect that. Well, according to the book, uh, after they got married, the families, Jimmy... James, whatever we're going to call him, Jimmy James, did not talk to his parents that much anymore. He only called them to say, hey, we've had a new child in the family. And here's a photograph of her because it was three daughters. 
That's so unfortunate. The, That's, the not parents, that they had daughters, but it's yeah. unfortunate that that they're not in you know their lives. Yeah, like they lives. they were pretty much out of their lives at that point. And they moved back to Alabama in 1992. The Andersons did. The the parents they moved back to Prattville, which is just north of Montgomery. If you're familiar with with Alabama, in 1992. So that just made it that much easier for Jimmy. I'm calling him Jimmy. Screw it. I love it. Right. We're calling him Jimmy for the rest of the show, everybody. We're all y'all we're, hear we're that? for mom. We're using Go mom. code names. All right. So it's Jimmy, and he is estranged from his parents, basically. So when Amy and James are allowed to live into the house behind the carriage house behind the the main uh home there on uh in Braintree, they immediately run afoul of the new inhabitants of the house that the parents that her parents have just sold. Uh, they don't like them immediately. The guy starts trying to figure out a way to get rid of them. He raises the rent in just a couple of months, and he's afraid to go and tell Amy Bishop that he's done it, so he calls Amy Bishop's parents. Maybe one of the smartest things he ever did, because instead of confronting him, Amy allows her parents to handle it, so the parents just say, hey, Amy, you and Jimmy and the kids, you guys come live with us. So they move out. Luckiest guy in the world. Exactly. One of, one of. Exactly. So in 1999, they they move into a, they try to live with her parents for a little while. Then they live in an apartment for a little while. It's tight because the money's not there. She doesn't make that much being a genetics doctorate. Well, yeah, academia does not. Right, academia, not so well. And and Jimmy can't really hold down a steady job. What does Jimmy, what's his degree well, in? I don't remember what his degree is in, but he, he's sort of a, he's sort of an individual entrepreneur. So he's always coming up with new ideas and, and sometimes they work and they make money for a few months. And then sometimes he's in the garage tinkering and I'm making this up, gotcha. but okay. you know, it's just inconsistent to the, okay. the financial support that he can provide to the family. So they have to find other ways to make ends meet. So they, they move around. They finally end up in a town called Ipswich, Massachusetts. So in 1999, Amy and Jimmy, all my notes say James, and I'm so mad at myself for writing down James when I meant to write down Jimmy, but they're in Ipswich now, and she is working full-time at Harvard still. And just another example of the type of uh, mentality or the, the way that Amy Bishop thought, she has an entire fit about a research paper because. Apparently, when you do research papers like these, when you're a genetics professor or genetics doctorate, it matters whose name is listed first in the author section. Oh, yes. And, and there was one research paper. We've all paper. seen the Big Bang Theory. Okay. <laughs> it matters. Big and time. it matters if you make it, if your name at all makes on it or if you make it at all. At, oh. At, at all. At all is probably worse <laughs> than not at all. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, uh, quite a few. Oh, congratulations. At all. <laughs> or condolences, whichever yeah. is more yeah, appropriate. But not genetics. <laughs> anyway, that's what happened to Amy. And apparently she went off the handle with some of her fellow researchers. And again, you have people saying to be documented later in A Professor's Rage, this woman was strange. She did good work, but she was strange and she was irate and she was uncontrollable. Okay. And she is still employed at Harvard. This is, is this prior to the bad review that you were speaking of earlier with? Yes, that was, that was at another Harvard research facility. So they have multiple facilities around. So she, she gets the negative eval from in 1993 from Dr. Rosenberg. Okay. And then she's moved on to some other location. I'm sorry. Okay. Gotcha. By most accounts, the woman is, she was intelligent. She did good work. She was just, she was living in her own reality and, and felt like that everyone else was inferior to her and anything that anyone did to elbow their way in, into her space, she took that as a personal affront and turned her eye on them in, in either physical form or verbally or just she was not, a, she was not pleasant. Or possibly mailing them a bomb. Or possibly mailing them a bomb. Possibly, allegedly. allegedly. We don't know. That's not been proven. That is true. Katie, I, you, I said that. I said allegedly, allegedly. possibly. Well, yep. Let's, let's okay. don't get sued less than 10 episodes <laughs> into season one. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah, that's not been proven. Yeah. So while she was 
in Ipswich after they had moved. She has this episode with her fellow researchers. Let me give you some of the things that were going on going on in the neighborhood where she lived. Uh, over the course of two and a half years, she once ran down the ice cream truck that ran down the street of their little neighborhood. Another quiet little neighborhood with trees and and houses close together. A nice upscale neighborhood here in Ips- in Ipswich, Massachusetts. She accosted the ice cream truck driver and told him not to come down her street anymore because her children were lactose intolerant, and if her kids couldn't have ice cream, nobody could have ice cream. So the ice cream truck stopped coming. Good gracious. Oh, Who wait. wants that lady on their street? Nobody. Uh, loud neighbors. She complained. She would call 911 and complain that the neighbors were being too loud when they were having a, a porch gathering of friends like we have all sat around together and done. Yeah, she couldn't be my neighbor. Exactly. You know, drinks and, and, some, uh, and some snacks. 911, too loud. Goodness. Uh, skateboarders, kids driving down the street on their skateboards or, or riding their bikes, 911. Her next door neighbor built a privacy fence. Not, not a fence all the way around his property. He just he split the property line because he did not want to deal with this woman anymore. Everyone in that neighborhood, they called her Pita, P I T A, pain in the ass. Oh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That was her nickname in that neighborhood. Um, and so finally, well, not no, finally is too soon. I shouldn't say that yet. Uh, in 2002, she's still living in the same town, but she goes over to the next town and to have breakfast with the family at an international house of pancakes. We all call that IHOP around here. I suppose everyone does, right? Well, apparently someone got ahead of her in line and got the last booster seat. So her youngest daughter needed a booster seat, but the folks in front of her got the last one. And her solution to that problem was to physically assault the mother of the child who got the last booster seat. She punched her in the head. And when the police came, the manager told her she was going to have to leave. And she responded by saying, do you know who I am? I'm Dr. Amy Bishop. And did he know who she was? He did not. He didn't have a clue, did he? No. Uh, so the police come, they throw her out. She makes a big deal in the months that follow trying to take this woman to court. She runs her up a bunch of legal bills, takes her to court, files a complaint against her uh, to try and turn the, the facts of the case around. She's just a fucking asshole, everybody. She's an asshole. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> this is going to have an E rating, Katie. <laughs> We can take that out if you like. No, I can click the button. No, that's fine. I mean, you're the one who did all the research. She's and all the a really bad person. She doesn't sound like anybody I would Un- want to invite to a party. Unpleasant. What? What is James or Jimmy doing? He is a house husband. What? At this what point. But I mean, what? During this, he I does hop- what he's told. <laughs> I guess he didn't afraid. say a word. Okay. You know, it, in fact, that's in the, the account of the incident. He didn't say a word the whole time. He didn't try to calm her down. He didn't try to say, honey, no big, hey, let's, don't worry about it. Let's just wait. Let's go somewhere else. He sat there and watched this woman turn into the Incredible Hulk and destroy everything. What are those kind of husbands like? I mean, I have I'm no not idea. married to one. And neither do either of you because <laughs> I know both of your husbands. Shane Gibbons or, or KT Turner would have drug us out of that IHOP. <laughs> that would be bad. Would be bad. Um, and another thing that Amy Bishop is doing at this time is she, she has joined a writing club and she has decided that she wants to be a novelist and that's going to be her pathway out of academia, which she seems to butt heads with. She, she's chosen this path. And if you become a, an academian like she has, you're overqualified to do almost anything else. I mean, if, if she loses tenure, if she can't be a, a research scientist anymore, what is she going to do? Nobody's going to hire her right. to run the cash register at the local grocery store. It seems like this might be a, a, a wise path for her because it would limit her interactions well, with other people. Sure. But let me tell you the title of one of the unpublished novels that she wrote. I cannot wait to hear it. Jerkville. <gasps> and, the, hmm. and the plot line, the main plot line is she is a research scientist who is okay. trying to conduct valuable research yes, that okay. will save mankind. Oh, my goodness. Only she is being held back by all of the, air quotes, jerks in her life. Okay. That's okay. the title of this unpublished novel. <laughs> and when she talked to, she, got, she hires an agent. She's written two or three of these unpublished novels at one point. 
when her agent subtly, because he's figured out that she's got a short fuse, right? He is trying to explain to her, hey, Amy, nobody wants to buy this crap. (laughs) She's telling him, listen, you need to take this to L.A., we need to go to Hollywood. This is a perfect movie script. When he says, eh, she flies off the handle at him, tells him he's an idiot. I'm Dr. Amy Bishop. I have a 180 IQ. You don't know what you're talking about. So this is part of her regular dialogue. The Dr. Amy Bishop, the the 180 IQ. She's going to remind you that you're not going to be able to forget her IQ or that she's a doctor. Kind of goes back to that pretentiousness that she displayed at the wedding when she insisted that her husband, Jimmy, be referred to as James going forward. Correct. Yeah. So to get back to that, uh, the last really 911 call, the last 911 call that took place in Ipswich was on March, I'm sorry, April the 27th, 2003. Uh, and it, it was, it was some simple incident at that point, the police department had, they would, they would log it in their logbook. They had stopped sending the police to her house. I'm not shocked by that. They were like, screw this bitch. We're done. I don't the think boy that's who a, cried wolf. They, yeah. No, they may have. They I don't think that's an actual that. quote from that. I don't but know. They, but you know, <laughs> think about it. She's pretty annoying. It would at this not point. shock me if it were. When the neighbors found out that she was moving. The reason that was the last phone call to 911 was because not long after that, she accepted a position at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and the family moved to Alabama. And one of the neighbors reportedly said in the book, those poor people in Alabama. Oh my gosh. And so they go down south. They head to Alabama. They head to Huntsville and she's, she started working there in, later in 2003. And there's this, there's this bright spot in Amy's life. She, she could have turned everything around Potentially, because she actually invented something. It, it's called a portable cell incubator. It's sort of like a, a Petri dish that you could take from one place to another. And I, the lady who wrote the book tried to explain that. Yeah, and there are different accounts on how, how good of an invention this was, right. on how practical it was, okay. on how expensive it may be to use, on how necessary it could be. Some people, a lot of her colleagues, thought it was a waste of time. Okay. But it was, the, it was the best idea she'd had. Yes, she had a patent for it. Right. Which actually the University of Alabama at Huntsville, or UAH as it's commonly As we known, call it, yeah. Um, owned, because when you work for a university like that and you get a patent, they usually own most of everything you come up with. So 2003, she starts work in, at the University of Alabama Huntsville. Right. In 2006, this invention comes along. Okay. In 2009, she comes up for tenure. Correct. And, and one of the things that happens is she stopped publishing. And one of the things that you have to do if you want to keep your job as a university professor is you have to be published once a year, right, Kelly? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think that that is a general rule. I think that her supervisors and her tenure committee said in order to be considered for tenure here, you have to be publishing and you are not publishing enough. And they warned her several times, you need to be publishing. And she yeah, there, there's a two-year lull in her publishing uh, endeavors. And so one of the last things that she publishes is in 2009, and she lists as the co-authors of this research paper her husband and her oldest daughter and her middle daughter and her youngest daughter. And I don't know how much those particular facts played into her denial of tenure in March of 2009, but she knew in March of 2009 that she was not going to be reemployed at UAH come March of 2010. And it was in February of 2010, right before she was about to lose her job, that the events that you mentioned at, as the show began happened. Yes, because that was at the, in a faculty meeting. Right. <clears throat> Most Which of the, she had no reason to attend because she, they were discussing things that were going to happen over the summer or in the fall. Right. That's what I was about to say, okay. that the, the faculty meeting was full of discussion about upcoming events, most of which she wouldn't experience because she would be gone within the next month. But which, it also had nothing to do with her tenure either. No, no, fact, she no, was gone. No, she, she was gone. And the lady that I mentioned, Deborah Moriarty in the, in the beginning, mm-hmm. Deborah was one of the ones on the committee who voted no. Deborah started there with 
Amy in 2003 okay. and they they were acquainted they were friends she thought they were yeah they were they talked about each other's family they knew you know Amy knew that during this time you know, Deborah had recently become a, a grandmother they mm-hmm. knew these personal things about each other so that adds to when Deborah it has her arms wrapped around Amy's legs when she's um shooting people during this this faculty because meeting she, and she climbs under the table she does she right. she dives under the table she she grabs a hold of amy's legs she's looking up at amy she's begging amy to stop this she's like you know think about my family think about you know she's bringing up all of these personal things that amy knew about deborah and amy looks at her points the gun at her and fires but because it jammed right. she did not shoot her and then amy continued to point the gun at Deborah, click, click, click the whole time. It is a miracle that Deborah is alive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I read is that the first two people that Amy shot that day were two of the people who were who were her benefactor. I mean, they they were they had yes they had signed off on her. Uh, you had the departmental director Padilla. Yes. He was he was a big fan of hers. Uh, he thought she was worth having back, despite her uh, idiosyncrasies. They just had basically chalked it up to she was not a good fit for their program. It may have had to do with the with the lack of publishing. It may have had to do with all of these personality things that you've brought right. up that people have, you know, been talking about in this book and articles and things. It's just for whatever reason. They did not want to work with Dr. Amy Bishop, IQ of 180, anymore. There were reports that students had requested to be removed from her classes, mm-hmm. multiple multiple counts of those. But you know, on the other side, and I don't want to take Amy Bishop's side because I don't know what was going on in her mind, but there are people who also say she was brilliant. She, she never bothered me. Everything was fine. It seems like as long as you walk the same direction she was walking in, you and she got along just fine. But the first time you bumped her a little bit or got her off of her path or suggested something she didn't like, it was really easy for her to turn on you and consider you an enemy from that point forward. What's that called? Not a doctor. <laughs> is there well, a term that, for that? Well, she definitely has, I would say, delusions of grandeur. <laughs> for sure. For, top uh, of the list. Definitely has a temper there, but I would counter what you just said right. with the fact that a lot of the people in the staff meeting weren't necessarily crossing her. Stephanie was an assistant. That's very true. <coughs> Several of the people, there were six people injured, I believe, and four were killed. Three were killed. Three were killed. Three were injured. Yeah. Three well, were maybe killed. in her delusional mind, and I don't know how far we want to jump down this rabbit hole. I feel like I say that every week, but maybe in, in Amy Bishop's mind, she wasn't punishing the individuals. She was punishing the institution, and those were the representatives of the institution that she had the chance to punish that day. It, I mean, it could have been that, I mean, she obviously lives in that's her irrational own thought. world. Correct. Sure, that's, she obviously that, lives in her own is world. Is that narcissistic, paranoid schizophrenia? Oh my gosh. Uh, there, uh, There's some narcissism there. There's yeah. some, uh, like I said, delusions of grandeur. Mm-hmm. Uh, she thinks she's very important and yeah. that everybody else should think she's very important. And when they don't, now you have a problem with Dr. Amy Bishop. Right. That's it. So that is possibly some of the reason, but a lot of the people in this meeting had not personally wronged mm-hmm. her or and were fans. Correct, correct. God bless them. And uh, now Deborah had voted no on Amy's okay. tenure, I did and not Amy know that. knew that. Uh, uh. So, and Deborah knew that she knew that in the staff meeting. And so she's noticing her behavior in the staff meeting. And I think Deborah's which you said earlier anxious about that. She was, she thought was odd because normally she's, uh, she's involved. Very talkative. Yes. And she just sat kind of in the back with her, with her black canvas bag in her lap and waited for the appropriate moment to pull out that nine millimeter gun and start pulling. The and trigger. it was as the meeting was coming to a close, right. she sat and listened to almost the entire meeting. Maybe thinking, Hey, maybe this will be the meeting where they, change their mind and ask me to come back if I'm sitting in the room? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows what's going on in that mind? So we have the events of February the 12th, 2010. 
the police apprehend Amy Bishop, but she's coming out of the Shelby Center. What happens next? Uh, well, she, she, the one uh, news account that I saw first when I started doing my research was one where they are physically putting her into the back of the police car and she is denying that the whole thing's happened. She's saying, muttering to herself as much as anything, no, 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 this didn't happen. I didn't do this. They're all still alive. Exactly. Well, she's then arrested, obviously. and Very arrested. Yes. And uh, she is very soon after charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. And I don't understand that. I guess it just doesn't matter in the state of Alabama. You don't have to charge somebody with three I capital murders. I asked Shane about that. Whether, you picked the best one? I said, well, I said, because she killed three people, why doesn't she have three counts of capital murder? And right. he said, capital murder is premeditated. And so maybe you can only, you know, maybe they decided, you know, she just decided to, you know, premeditated to kill one person and she ended up killing three. Are or, they calling the, okay. the department head the, the capital murder? Do we it, know? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Or, or were the first two spontaneous I have because a gun, the, bang, bang, and the third one is the capital murder. Charge. Well, the, de- the department head was shot first, in the head, right? First, yeah. I mean, it was very so stand up, point, the shoot. She's in a room with and a bag with a gun going in it. around the okay. table. I All did right. ask that, and, sh- and Shane didn't have an answer for me. Okay, and so, and he is a lawyer. And so he is, a, he yes, is yes. Okay. an attorney. He right. has defended capital murder cases before. So, right. okay. Semi-qualified to answer that question. <laughs> At least. <laughs> we would say. Definitely yeah. more than anybody in this room. Yeah. And so, go ahead. Her Katie. attorney states that she was uh, very cognizant, um, but that she did seem to have a loose grip on reality. And she appeared to be a paranoid schizophrenic, in his opinion. However, he later retracted the statement, saying he spoke out of turn. He is obviously not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and he has no right to state that. I think he's the term he used. He's not a doctor. He's not a doctor, but I think the term he used was wacko. No, I think the term he used was paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> I, I re- no, I read, I read that he said wacko. He may Are not. you saying wacko like W-H or wacko like W-A? I always get in trouble for adding an it's H It's coming out as wacko. Wacko. Okay, right, let's well, cut so all that. She okay. did. <laughs> no, we're leaving that cut in. Cut it all. We're leaving it in. She did originally uh, plead not guilty by means of insanity and- the trial was deferred in order to give the defense time to have her declared not competent for trial because that's a whole process. So they're getting her a psychological evaluation. Exactly. Okay. Because the actual trial itself, lack thereof, the the sentencing and everything didn't happen until 2012. So we're here in 2010 and she is in prison. And at the same time, an inquest is being made into the case that happened in Massachusetts, her brother's shooting, as we talked about earlier. Right. So on June 16th, 2010, she was actually charged with first-degree murder in her brother's case. Oh, so they're going to come back and open this back up. Well, what happens is there's there's several phone conversations when the news breaks, and this, is, this becomes a national news story pretty quickly because it's just the latest in a line of horrible things that happen with guns in this country. I mean, there were conversations that took place in Braintree, Massachusetts after this story broke because the name Amy Bishop came up and there were a lot of people who were on the, a lot of officers who were either retired and still lived in the Braintree area or were still on the force who remembered that name and remembered what happened in 1986 and thought, oh boy, and, we're all going to be in trouble now. And magically in February of 2010, files that had gone missing in 1988 on her case were found. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how that happened. There yeah. was a new investigation done. And like I said, she was charged on June 16th, 2010. And then June 18th, 2010, she did attempt suicide. She survived. Yeah. But after those charges were filed, she attempted suicide in the jail. Um, the, after that, multiple civil lawsuits were also filed against her from the survivors and spouses of the deceased. Oh, I can, I can imagine. And there was even a case against uh, the University of Alabama Huntsville, right? Because sure. they, you're they... going to go after everyone, especially sure. someone that has as much insurance as a university, right? September 11th, 2012, we are finally getting set to have this trial, and she agrees to change her plea to guilty in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. Um, one of the spouses of one of the victims actually wrote a letter to the judge saying that none of them wished to see 
the death penalty in this case that they didn't think that the loss of another life would make anything better. They were all against the death penalty. Wow, that's that's an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. I just I, that I would not have written that. Yeah, letter. they. It's, that's a, that's very amazing. And so after that fact, the because the prosecution was always going after the death penalty. We're in Alabama, right? It is what it is. And yep. after that, the prosecution agreed to take that death penalty off the table in exchange for a guilty plea. So she pleads guilty on September 11th, 2012 to one count of capital murder, like I said, and three counts of attempted murder. On September 24th, 2012, even though she's already pled guilty, a jury has to convene to give a sentencing recommendation to the judge in a capital murder case in the state of Alabama. That's how that works. Okay. So they convene and they give a sentencing recommendation of life without possibility of parole, which the judge agrees with. And so on the same day, September 24th, 2012, she sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. So it's just a formality that has to happen in the state of Alabama, but they follow through and do what they need to do. Right. And then she, in the process of pleading guilty, she waives her right to an appeal. On February 11th, 2013, she files another. I thought that might be coming. Stating that she was not informed of the rights she would be waiving, uh, that she was not correctly informed of the minimum range of punishment that that sentence would carry, that she uh, was that her attorneys failed to explain that she could withdraw her plea. And that appeal was quickly rejected. Right. Because you can't in one breath claim to be a genius and in the second breath say that you didn't understand anything that was going and, on. And didn't I read somewhere that that's kind of what the, the judge said? Look, sorry, lady, you're you're really smart, so yes. don't act like we fooled you. Exactly. I guess you can't blame her for trying, though, right? Because like we talked about in earlier cases, the way that you have an appeal accepted is that somebody is found to have made a mistake along the way. Exactly. So, so you, you, you make them look at everything again and make sure nobody made a mistake. You, you claim that yeah. you're you know, that your attorneys are incompetent and they were not. It's why we have an appeals process. Right. So it gets out again. Yeah. Yeah. So simultaneously, while before this, before she files this appeal in September, 2012, when she is sentenced to life in prison, the Norfolk County, which is where Braintree, Massachusetts is Norfolk County, Massachusetts. They declined to seek her extradition to Massachusetts to try her on those first degree murder charges that they have charged her on. Which she states that she would like to be tried in that case because she wanted vindication and she wanted people to, they, she wanted to be declared innocent, but they have decided to not try her on that case because she's going to be in prison in Alabama for the rest of her life. Well, the book that I read, it, it, the, the speculation was that the reason she tried to commit suicide two days after that jury in Massachusetts or that, uh, those charges were filed against her in Massachusetts. She could live with the fact that she'd killed three people in Alabama, but she did not want her parents to think that she had intentionally killed her younger brother 25 years before. And so that was, that was too much. That was more than she could bear emotionally. So that, that's why she tried to take a, a flimsy razor that she'd been given to shave her legs with or whatever. And it was so weak that she couldn't even uh, damage her uh, wrists enough to cause them to bleed. She didn't even get to spend a night in the hospital that night. She was back in her jail cell before midnight that night uh, because it was a failed attempt. But that's that was the speculation that that was the one thing she couldn't live with is her parents thinking she'd killed their son right. and her brother. But as of today, she is serving her life sentence at Tutwiler, which was where every female in Alabama goes. You, you've heard that name multiple times We already. keep talking about folks who end up at Tutwiler. She is currently in a medium security dormitory, not in a cell block, serving out her days. Well, I mean, isn't every prison in Alabama horribly overcrowded right now? There's probably not a cell in a prison anywhere in the state of Alabama that's got the correct, less than twice the correct number of people in it. So. They may just be building metal buildings at this point and shoving them in there. Sorry, yeah, we, may want we to don't. Take that we out. don't. We don't have enough time to go into prison reform today. But maybe that's one for down the road. I also want to list uh, two more individuals who were shot Certainly. that day. We didn't yes. uh, list them in in the beginning in the part that that I was uh, talking about at the at the very beginning when we were you know kind of painting the picture of this crime. Um, of the victims that we listed in the opener there, uh, Stephanie Monticciolo survived. 
the we also had two other victims who were injured and survived, and it was um, Luis Cruz Vera, and I'm telling you guys right now, I'm not pronouncing these I names correctly, but I'm I'm so sorry. I do not mean to offend. I'm just Certainly. wanted to say the names, and then we have Joseph Lee. Leahy. 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 If it's like Pat Leahy, the senator, it's Leahy. Okay, then my my apologies. I do not mean to offend. Those are two additional victims that were injured during the faculty shooting, but survived the and, and have incident. recovered and recovered. Um, one one died many years later from natural causes, okay. Okay. but but those three victims did survive the shooting. Okay. So I wanted to make sure that all of our victims were honored um, that we did not mention in the beginning. And I imagine for those who have survived this and their family members or the family members of those who lost loved ones, it has been a very difficult road ever since this incident occurred. And I don't want to I don't want to continue to offend by mispronouncing their loved one's right. name. So my my apologies if I did. I just want to make sure that everybody is honored and there are a lot of people that suffered that day. I have watched a lot of YouTube videos about this incident. I have heard several of those na- those names pronounced multiple ways. So I think okay. everybody who's anybody who's not familiar with those is just trying to do the best they can. I thought it's you hard. did you did a better job than most of the ones I've heard. Well, on thank you, thank you. So, yep. So, we just want to make sure that um, we bring those names to light as well. And can I uh, let me do this? And maybe we just want to end the show on a high note. And let's talk about some of the things that were going on back in 1986. You guys know how I like my history stuff. That sounds good. I, okay. I, I would love to end on a happy note, Katie. Katie is rolling her eyes at me, but I love it when I make her do that. <laughs> so what's going on in 1986? Well, the most important thing in 1986 was that was the year that I got my driver's license. Oh my goodness. Yes, it was indeed. <laughs> uh, but some of the other things more seriously that happened in 1986, of course, in January of 86 was the uh, the Challenger explosion. We, If you were alive then, oh, you yes. remember sitting and watching a television all day and watching. That was horrifying. That happen over and over and over. Haley's Comet was in the sky in 1986, and Katie Gibbons has a shot to see it when it comes back again. She'll be 73 in the year 2062 (laughs) when Haley's Comet is next in the air. She's not rolling her eyes now. I'll be dead and gone unless I'm 92 and in a wheelchair or worse. I'll probably be dead and gone as well. (laughs) And the day after Amy Bishop's 21st birthday, Chernobyl exploded. That was April the 26th, 1986. A lot of explosions in A lot of explosions in 86. Mm -hmm. Some of the songs that were big, uh, you guys are going to love this, Uh, Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer. Oh my goodness. Was huge that year. Who isn't addicted to love? Right? Higher Love by Steve Winwood. Oh, yeah. You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. Oh my And my favorite, and here's a little trivia for you, Rock Me Amadeus, Name the Artist. If my husband were sitting here, he could name it. But I can't. His name, he was German, the only German singing artist to ever have a number one hit in the United States of America. His name was Hans Holzel. We all know him better as Falco. I, I guarantee you, KT would have known. Yeah, he would have known. <laughs> do we all know him better? <laughs> well, we we do, Katie. And the last yeah, thing, yeah. and I'm done, uh, the top three films... At the box office okay. for the year 1986. Tom Cruise was in number one. Take a shot. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Oh, Top, Top Gun. Gun. Yes. Yeah. The number two movie. Talk to me, Goose. The number two movie. Um, now that's an off. That's a terrible. Crocodile Dundee. Yes, a terrible Australian oh, that accent. Was but you terrible. got it anyway. I know it was awful. <laughs> and I'm not even going to attempt the uh, the the accent that Pat Morita used as Mr. Miyagi in this movie. Oh, the Karate Kid. Part two. Part two. Ooh, Part two. Okay. In okay. And right. I'm done. Those are great movies. Oh. I love that. I love that. And I love to end on a high note. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Katie. 
Talk about some social media. Oh, yes. Why don't, mm. don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on all our social media channels. You get a surprise if you go over to TikTok now because oh, we, we actually posted some TikTok. An unwanted surprise, maybe. We tried our first video yesterday during our lunch meeting. And it was blazing hot mm. during that lunch meeting. Do you mean the video or the temperature outside? I mean both. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> Follow us over on Instagram, mm-hmm. on Facebook. Find us everywhere. We'll keep you updated on what's going on with us. Come give see us, us live on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. And give us a five-star rating. Please. It, it, wherever you listen to your podcast, give us a five-star rating. You can make a comment, but apparently the algorithm doesn't care about a comment. But it only cares about comments. the five-star rating. Uh, That's fine. You can tell us. We will read it. Yes. I don't think the algorithm cares too much no. about your comments. No, it can't read English yet, but give them three years, they'll have that figured out. But I lo- I, I'm loving the comments that we have received and the five-star ratings we have received. Thank you so much for that. And so tell your friends, tell your family. One last thing. Thanks to all of our listeners overseas. We've got listeners in... In, in, in Canada. Amsterdam. In Amsterdam. And we know who that is. Hi, Beth. And uh, Sweden. Sweden. Mm-hmm. One India. other one. India. India. Germany. That might have been just a... Yes. Did you say Germany? Germany. Yeah. Yes. Germany. Yeah. India might have just been an errant click. I don't know. I'm curious to find out what the analytics have to say about that long term. Hopefully, we'll gather more because, good grief, there's a lot of people over there. Exactly. It's so very exciting. We love um, reaching people all over the globe. We want to continue doing this. So tell your friends, tell your family, five-star rating. We want to keep keep that up, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you for all the feedback. Thank you for joining us. Katie says it's time to go. Good night, everybody. She's <laughs> shutting us up with the music. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>